Okay, if we could get started, we know that there's great fellowship that's going on. And if we could get... So anyway, we had problems with this mic last week, and uh, are we still having problems with it, or is it coming through? We're okay so far? Okay, all right. So uh, anyway, we can... Our daughter and her daughter and husband are here today. They just wanted to check out to see if I was still teaching Sunday school properly. Oh, and the fact that I'm wearing black today, there's no significance to that. It's just that that's what was next in line in my closet. And so I go down the line and I don't need to make any more decisions. So I just take stuff off the end of the rack and go from there. So um, Now, I know the ladies wouldn't do this, but guys, it's a great way to leave one of your stress things away. <laughs> okay, let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we come to you. We thank you once again for being with us, for being so gracious, even in tri- times of trials. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us today as we look into your word, that we might be able to gain information, to gain a blessing from it. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to take a few minutes and talk, as it's good for me. Even if I have problems controlling my emotions at times. Ruth and I love the people of Cornerstone and I know that you loved her. And I think that times you have a grudging appreciation for me also. (laughs) The week before Christmas was very normal for us, except that Ruth was doing extra baking and food preparations as we were going to celebrate our family Christmas at our youngest son Scott's house in Buffalo, Minnesota. And among the things she prepared was cherry mousse, which was a family favorite at holiday time. It is a German-Russian Mennonite dish, which is normally called plumemousse, which is a thin pudding, and it was prepared with prunes, raisins, and dried apricots. But my dad did not like prunes. So he asked my mom to experiment with different fruits, so they finally settled on cherries, and that is what Ruth always did for our special holidays. Ruth learned to make many of the German Mennonite dishes, such as Vranke, Porzeltje, Rallkuchen, Fleischkichlen. She also mixed in many Indian dishes that were heavy on rice and curry spices, as she was born in India. We went to the gym on Wednesday for our normal exercise routine, spent 45 minutes in the gym. We had Jim and Eileen Burns and Doug and Gina Westra over for dessert that evening. Ruth hosted book club, book club Thursday morning and was honored with gifts for being the host and wanted to know if we could go out for supper that night as she was cooked out. 
We went to an Indian restaurant near our place to enjoy some of her favorite food. Then on Friday afternoon, we traveled to Maple Grove to our son Greg's house, where they were going to have a bridal shower for our granddaughter, Emily. All the members of the family were there, including our latest great-grandchild, Violet Maxwell, who Ruth held that night for about 45 minutes and had a great time. They did some crafts and things. The men went to a high school basketball game, and so after they were done with their shower, Ruth went home with Jen to Scott's house in Buffalo. I got to Buffalo soon after. We went to bed about 11 p.m. After having our normal family devotions, which was a custom for 61 and a half years, we had family, our devotions, Ruth and I, just a short Bible reading and a short devotional on that. Now, I didn't, we didn't always do it. When I got home from a basketball game at 3 in the morning, we didn't do it. But when we were normal there, we always had those. Started the first night that we were married. She was somewhat restless that night, but was, that was not unusual since she has not slept well for several years. But at about 2 o'clock in the morning, Scott came down to wake me up and said, Mom was having trouble breathing. And I needed to come up as Mom had called for Jen, who is a nurse. So she went up the stairs. She didn't want to disturb me. This is one of the things that she was always so afraid of with her restlessness that she would wake me up. I told her, don't worry about it. I sleep soundly. It's not a problem. So I think that's why she went up to get, to get Jen. When I got to her, Jen was on the phone with a 911 operator, and they were testing Ruth for a stroke, which she passed easily. They asked her if she could smile, and she could, whether she could raise both arms, and she could. They asked her to repeat a short little ditty, which she was able to do, but then she dropped back onto the steps, slumped back. By this time, the sheriff had come and was administering oxygen, and the EMT personnel were close behind. They did a few tests and then loaded her onto the ambulance and went to the Alina Medical Facility in Buffalo, Minnesota, where they immediately put her on a respirator and started to treat her. After a few minutes of this, the doctor came to me and asked if they should continue because if she recovers from this, she's going to be a very sick lady. We have a DNR set up, but we were healthy individuals, we thought. So I asked the doctor if he could continue for just a few more minutes. So he complied, but after 15 more minutes, the machine was shut off. When I realized that Ruth was no longer with us, my first thought was that she had probably found her mother. Ruth's mother died when Ruth was about five years old from working in a TB sanitarium in India where she and her husband were missionaries. 
Ruth remembers her mother giving her an orange slice and telling Ruth that she was going to heaven, which was very disturbing for a young girl, and she choked on the orange slice and ran out of the room. Ruth was not allowed to see her mother in the casket. They didn't think that was good for children. And her father did not tell her where her mother was buried. Her father destroyed all of the things that reminded him of his wife, all of the baby pictures that Ruth had and so on. We were able to find one picture of Ruth's mother. It was a passport picture that somehow had escaped. And so that's the only picture that Ruth ever had of her mother. As a young teenager, Ruth would roam through the cemeteries of Missouri. It's not Missouri, it's Missouri. This is in the Himalaya Mountains of India. She would roam through the cemeteries of Missouri for many hours, looking for her mother's grave. Ruth showed me the cemeteries that she had perused through when we went back to India ten years ago. We found out later that Ruth's mom was probably buried in Duradun, which was a city about 35 miles south of where they had living, but we did not pursue that location. I've learned something already after one week that I will never be able to correct. That is that I complimented Ruth many times on the things that she did, such as her knitting, sewing, maintaining her comfortable home, cooking nutritious meals, and being an exceptional mother and grandmother. But I did not compliment her enough on who she was. A spiritual mother, a devoted wife, a beautiful lady, and a loyal friend to so many. The messages and condolences that I have received have a common theme, and that's the common theme there, what Ruth was. She was a mother to many of the college students we ministered to. She worked in the bookstore and in the snack shop, and the girls especially would come on by, especially if they were having boyfriend problems and so on, they would come and ask for advice. She was a mentor to young women, known for having a sweet and gentle spirit, and being a very classy lady in her demeanor, dress, and the way she kept her home. Don't let that happen to you, guys, that you don't compliment your wife on who she is. In every marriage, there are some wrinkles, bumps, misunderstandings, and different ways of thinking about things. But forget about that. I only wish I could put up with those things again. I will be forever grateful for the privilege of being Ruth's husband. Thank you for indulging me in this opportunity. We love Cornerstone and the people of Cornerstone. Oh, I'm not thinking right. We, we had Christmas presents that we had gotten together. And we still celebrated Christmas the day after, well, the morning after she died. 
and I forgot to get those out and distribute those. And so even here, I had this all set up, so I was going to have this up while I read that tribute. This took place on our 80th wedding anniversary. Excuse me. (laughs) I told you. Ruth's Ruth's 80th birthday. So uh, I wanted to have that up. And so you see what's happening here. Okay. All right, Micah chapter 4, verse 8 is where we ended, so we'll continue on from there. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion, and shall come kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now this particular place, it says the tower of the flock, We're not sure just exactly what Micah is referring to, but it could be that he's speaking about the old city of Jerusalem. Now, this is the old city of Jerusalem, and actually the the city of David is down here like this. But there is a ridge that goes across here between the old city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, the ridge that goes across there. And it's possible that that's the ridge that Micah is referring to, or he could be referring to the entire city of Jerusalem. So we then go on to verse 9. And verse 9 says, Now, why do you cry aloud? This is the first of three nows that are found here. We have 4.9, the now, 4.11, now many nations, and then we have 5.1, now muster your troops. And so Micah is definitely bringing something up that he wants people to think about at this present time. Now, he... Talking about the judgment, and remember we talked about this when we talked about Micah, that there's actually three cycles where you start out with judgment, then you go on to grace, and it keeps on getting better and better. Then you have judgment again, and then it goes on to grace. And the third time we have that same cycle. So here we have this uh, judgment that we have and grace is going to be following in this. It says, Now why do you cry aloud, there is no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe in groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city, and dwell in the open country, you shall go to Babylon, There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, there is some controversy about Micah and as to whether Micah wrote the entire book, and conservative scholars believe that that is the case, that Micah wrote the entire book. 
But the liberal scholars say that, no, there are things in here that Micah couldn't have known, so that there was another author about 150 years later. So what is one of the things that you see in these first two verses that Micah would not have known other than for a miracle or for the Lord revealing this to him? Grant. Okay. All right. Talks about Babylon. Why is this something that's difficult to, uh, to relate here? Who was the ruling country at this time? Okay. We have Assyria. Assyria was the country uh, that was ruling at this time. And uh, so Babylon was not a well-known area at this time. Assyria, now this is not Syria, but Assyria is this whole area. Babylon would have been this area over here. And Babylon was under, well, Sennacherib was the king that was from Assyria. He was the king that was coming on down but then Babylon, this was Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. And this wasn't until about 120 years after Micah's time. So we have the aspect of Babylon. And so that Micah was forecasting, he was predicting what was going to happen to the children of Israel if they did not turn from their wicked ways. We also see one other thing in these verses. It's actually in verse 9 that he did not, that had to be revealed to Micah. Anybody pick up on that? In my Bible, it's in the second phrase of verse 9. No king. All right. Israel had a king at the time that Micah was prophesied. And so this was something that was going to happen, that they were not going to have a king. This is something that was disturbing to the Israelites because they uh, had been asking for a king. This is one of the problems that the Israelites had when they came into the land of Israel, that they didn't have a king like all of the other countries around them. So Babylon was not in existence. They still had a king these were things that were going to happen to them. Yes? Do you think uh, in verse 10 there where it says, uh, you will be rescued and the Lord will redeem you, would that not also be referenced to Cyrus of Persia? Okay. I started this out saying that now was our time of judgment and what was going to happen after that? We were going to be going on up. So yes, Cyrus would have been the answer to this. Cyrus then came on in, captured Babylon. Uh, well, Nebuchadnezzar was gone by this time already. But then he released the Jews to go back. And for those of you that remember our study in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, this was the story about the Jews coming back from Babylon and going back and reestablishing the uh, kingdom or the building the temple 
and uh, putting the gates back up again, the fence, so on. Okay, any other comments or questions? Yes. Yes, Jeremiah prophesied about 100 years after Micah did. Micah and Isaiah were concurrent. Isaiah prophesied for a little bit longer period of time. Micah didn't prophesy for a very long time, but he was kind of in the middle of Isaiah's prophecy. And then Jeremiah comes about 100 years later. Any other comments or questions? Okay, so we see that uh, the days of the, the, that Micah is telling them that they are going to have to suffer because of their sins, but that there is something that's going to come. There will be a future for them. And uh, what are other areas where there they were delivered from judgment. Let's look at the Israelites. What are, what are some of the other areas where the Israelites were delivered from judgment? This is not a hard question. That means that I want some answers. <laughs> yes. Okay from the Egyptians. See, when they went down there, did they go down there under great stress from the Egyptians? No. No, they went down there, and this was a great time for them, but then the Egyptians changed pharaohs, and it became more and more difficult. And then, so they were under judgment, and then the Lord brought them on out. And so, when they came into the land of Canaan, things weren't easy then either. They had to fight to win over the battle, the Canaan, uh, land of Canaan. And so, they were always in this cycle of blessedness, and then they would turn away, and then they would have to pay, pay for what they had done. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes, Flora. Okay, the Battle of Jericho. Oh, they were actually marvelously delivered uh, there. Yes, right. Okay. Yes, you had this constant repetition that was taking place of punishment, and then the Lord would see, and they would repent, and then it wasn't long until every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and they fell again into sin. And so then God would have to punish them, and they would start over this cycle. Are there any situations in our life, either as a country 
or your situation where you see a similar pattern? Yes, John. Okay, uh, among other things, we are suffering as a nation because of... Okay, all right. Yes, Grant. Okay. All right. Okay. So we have that. Any other things that you can think of? Okay. I think that as a nation, our nation started out, the leaders of our nation were not all Christians, but they founded the nation on Christian principles. And we have gone far from those Christian principles, and we are possibly going to have to suffer from that. Now, I see even in countries, for instance, in China, China went through, Christians went through a lot of persecution. Is the church dead in China? No, the church is growing in China. Even in some of the Arab countries where they have been persecuted and persecuted, the church is growing in those areas. And so the Lord is able to use these difficult times to have us grow. And I'm sure that this is going to be the case in my life also, that the Lord is going to allow me to grow as a result of this difficult time. Okay, now we go on to um, verse 11. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled, and let her, our, gaze, our eyes gaze upon Zion. Now, again, Micah is speaking about things that are going to happen to Israel in the near future, things that they're, they're going to be overtaken. But he's also talking about things in the far future. And so and I think that this is one of the things that's in the far future and that the, uh, where he says, now many nations are assembled against you, that this is probably... What did I do with my stick? All right. Okay, this is the area right up in here. That's the Valley of Megiddo. That's where the Battle of Armageddon is going to fight, be fought. And most of the commentators that I looked at feel that this verse is not talking about the near future, what's going to happen, but this is the far, far future. It's certainly, the near future also is possible there. I believe that there are 20 Arab nations 
that are surrounding Israel. And so there are many nations right now that would like to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And so they have that, but this, I believe, is talking about the Battle of Armageddon. This is a picture of the Megiddo. This is Ruth and our youngest son, Scott. And we're looking out over the valley. And that valley, according to the Bible, is going to flow with blood from the carnage that occurs from the battles that are taking place there. This is also the headquarters for the Israeli Air Force. You don't see any planes. They're there. Jet plane would come on in, would land, and in about two minutes it was gone. All their planes are underground here. And so they would land on that runway, take off and go underground. They have a fabulous, fabulous base that they have set up there. And so it's fitting that they have, and most Jews probably don't even realize that this is where the battle is going to be fought. But they have their planes at the right spot for that. So we see that there are, uh, the nations are going to come against them. And we've certainly seen that in many years. Verse 12, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. And you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So what do we see here in these two verses? What is happening as God has told them about this battle that's going to take place in their land here in this valley of Megiddo? It's a beautiful valley, by the way. It's filled with agriculture now. There's a lot of fish farms, and uh, there's uh, um, fig orchards and uh, coconut orchards and bananas and so on. Beautiful valley. So what is going to, what is God saying here? Flora. Okay. Prophecy for end times. So what time of the year, for those of you that have a farm background, what time of the year is payday? In the fall, when you reap the grain, when you sell the cattle, and those types of things. And so we see here that telling Micah to tell these people that they are going to have a harvest. There is going to be rejoicing that they are going to have. So God is still in control. And that's one of the things that if you despair about the economy, and the stock market's actually been pretty good the last month, if you despair about the political condition and so on, just read the end of the book 
we know how it ends up. And God is telling the children of Israel this. And in Psalm chapter 83, Psalm chapter 83, it says, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Sounds awfully familiar to things that are happening today. For they conspire with me with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalekite, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of Lot. What is common? What, why is God mentioning all of these nations? What did they have in common? They all tried to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. They all tried to keep the Israelites from marching through the Sinai Peninsula and marching from Egypt on up to uh, the promised land. But then it says, do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zuma, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. And so God continues on here, verse 18, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And so David, as he is penning this psalm, is talking about all of the trials that Israel's had. And David had plenty of his own, but that the Lord was faithful, and the Lord took care of him, and he will do the same for us. Verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1, should probably still be in chapter 4. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So there is, God is talking about the siege against Judah. And uh, then he talks about that this, uh, this, that says you shall, the, uh, there should strike the, uh, the uh, no, I'm on the wrong page here. Okay, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel. We're not sure just exactly what that means, but King Zedekiah, and again, this would be prophesy, King, uh, prophecy. King Zedekiah was the last king that we had there, and when he was captured, his eyes were put out by the uh, by uh, uh, Sennacherib. Uh, no, Nebuchadnezzar. His eyes were put out. So maybe that's what it's referring to. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, that they would put out his eyes, and that he would be their subject. Then we come to chapter 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
from you shall come forth for me, and I'll catch up here. And this is now the beginning of the hope section. Judgment, grace to hope. Judgment to hope. Judgment to hope. We're coming to another one here. It says that, For you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Okay, Bethlehem at that time was somewhere around 1,000 to 2,000 people, they think. So it was a rather small town compared to Jerusalem and some of the other towns there. Nowadays, Bethlehem is about uh, 20 to 25,000 population. Um, one of the interesting things is that in 1947, Bethlehem was 80% Christian, 20% Muslim. Now it's about 95% Muslim and only about 5% Christian. And the term Christian there is used in a very broad sense. But it's a much larger town than it was in the days when Mary and Joseph came on in there. And it's, we see here that um, it says, you shall come forth who is to be a ruler in Israel. Now the term ruler here is not the same as the term used for king. So who would this ruler be? This is another easy question. This is a real softball that I'm tossing you. Pardon? Yeah, this is Jesus. And so Jesus did not come as a king here, even though he was of the kingly line of David, but he was a, a ruler, and he was going to be the... Um, he was going to be, he is going to be the head of all of the nations. So we see here that you don't have to be powerful, prestigious, a uh, financier, and so on to have influence. And I think that we can see a little bit of this. Ruth was not a dominating personality. Ruth did not go out and lead and say, follow me. But I think she had a lot of influence. And so we see that same, same thing here, which Micah is telling these individuals. So God uses individuals who are insignificant in man's eyes to accomplish great things for him. Then we continue on, verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his King, of his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now, I think that that first part of verse 5 should actually be at the end of verse 4. But then I could be wrong on that. I've been wrong on a lot of other things. But anyway, we see there that he talks about the individuals that are going to be uh, their enemies. We have Assyria, which was their enemy. We had all of the countries that I previously named that were their enemies, 
And so we see that they are going to have a lot of enemies, but God will be their peace. And this is in the future. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, and we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at his entrances. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Assyria and Nimrod, Nimrod is kind of a nebulous area. Nineveh was probably the capital of the country that Nimrod Nimrod is mentioned in the genealogies back in Genesis, and uh, he was considered to be a, a great hunter. And uh, in uh, the ways that he was presented, he was not necessarily a great man to be emulated, but he was a great man as far as sin was concerned and what he did to the people that he was uh, and control of. It mentions this aspect of the, um, that uh, we have seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Don't attach a lot of significance to the seven and eight. The seven and the eight are a Jewish idiom for we have enough. We have enough men to accomplish what we need to accomplish. And so this is the Jewish idiom that they used to show this. And we see that they would be, uh, that they would, would be delivered and that there would be enough there for them. Then verse 5a, and he shall be their peace. I think that this attaches to the previous one. Some commentators, and they commentators were about 50-50 on this, think that it uh, is it's a continuation of verse the rest of verse 5, um, but I like to attach it to the end of verse 4. And I think that that's probably a good place to end any comments or questions that you have. Grant. Okay. So they're addressing there the fact that the nations will not see and know. All right. Now this is something that I kind of slipped up on. I was really going to bring this out. But when we had the Six Days War, who was expected to win that? Yes. Yes. Jordan, Egypt, and Syria. All of the Arab nations were expected to win that. And this has been a situation that when Hitler was trying to eliminate the Jewish nation with the Holocaust, and the Holocaust did occur, I don't know, I don't care what some of you have learned in 
public school, but the Holocaust did occur. I have been in one of the camps where the Holocaust was taking place, and they could open that up in a week and have that running again. Uh, but it did occur. And so, but what Micah is saying here, these nations are expecting that they're going to be able to come in here and wipe Israel off the face of the earth. But I know the end of the story. And I will win in the end. Any other comments or questions? Okay, thank you. And uh, have a happy new year. And Lord willing. And that means a lot to more, more to me now than it did. We'll see you next Sunday. <laughs>